Hey Matt, let's take a page break. Oh, uh, welcome to Page Break there. I'm Jeremy. <laughs> I'm Madison. And, uh, oh, we got a, a weird little one for you today. It's, uh, I, I'm falling into Irish. Damn it. I, I fell from, <laughs> from William H. Macy to Irish in, in a, in a weird turn there. <sighs> Guys, I'm just going to warn everyone at home listening. First off, thank you for listening to our lovely show. We really appreciate it. Uh, those of you that listen and seem interested in what we want to talk about this week, we're going to be doing a lot of accents. Well. So. Fair distinction. I'll try, you know, but oh, well, I, can't, I, get, I can't carry it. You got it. There, there's one phrase you got to do to get you into. It's like, you're darn tootin'. You got that. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Darn tootin'. You're darn tootin'. Yeah. My, once you get that down, you'll, you're, you're good from there. My favorite is, oh, geez. Ah, geez. I love that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Look at one of the characters in this movie. Their dying words are, <laughs> ah, jeez. <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised that I'm not from the Midwest because I feel like such a connection. There is a level of super, there is a level of just such a nice level passive aggression to everybody <laughs> in this film. It's kind of incredible. And the film we're talking about today is Fargo. Fargo. I'm uh, Jerry Lindegard. You got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? Ah! See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? I'm... Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. It's directed by uh, uh, Joel Cohen and with an original screenplay by Joel Cohen and uh, Ethan Cohen. <laughs> Because, you know, they are uh, per the DGA, they can't actually direct together. They got to direct uh, technically separately, even though they do it together. It's real stupid. I never thought about that. It's weird. Yeah, they, they can get dual screenplay credit, but they cannot technically direct as a directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. So if you look up their IMDb, there are some movies that are directed by one, some that are directed by the other, even though they both actually are directing the films. It's real weird. That's dumb. It's really dumb. It's just it's union rules. It's really stupid. So it is my pick this week. Uh, and no, I didn't just do this pick to do cool accents. It's <laughs> It was a factor, but it wasn't the only reason. It was also partly because I found out that the lovely and talented Miss Madison Moore has never seen this film. I know. There's so many things I haven't seen. Tis true. It's it's we all have our faults. We all have the weird <laughs> things that just for some reason or another have slipped through the cracks. I think that if my fault is not seeing Fargo and Moneyball, I'm doing okay. Madge, you're doing fine. Most people <laughs> mo look, dude, my parents love Fargo the show, and when I told them there was a movie, they're like, Is there? I'm like, What? Yeah. They, they had no didn't idea. No. No clue. No Even clue. Even I knew there was a movie. They knew nothing. It's it's fine. It's <laughs> they do things backwards, my parents. So like they'll watch the thing that was a derivative of the thing and then they'll go back and watch the original thing and think the original thing wasn't as good. Mm. It's kind of like when I, it's kind of like when I showed my dad 22 Jump Street before I showed him 21 Jump Street ah. and he loved 22 Jump Street. But then when I showed him 21 Jump Street, he was like, eh, it was OK. I'm like, it's literally <laughs> the same movie. That's the joke. Oh, God, that's great. Anyway, Fargoal, Madison. Yes. What were your thoughts on this lovely film? 
I thought it was super good. I mean, I assumed it was good because, you know, it's kind of a classic. True. Which, even though I've never seen it, I do recognize that it's, you know, a classic. Um, it's kind of on this, the general list of amazing movies from like 1993 to 1999. It's just, it's, it's, it's iconic, truly. Right. I thought it was a wild ride but in like a very subtle way which is exactly what they were going for it really is like the that's my favorite kind of like drama is when there's a lot of like really dark humor in it oh yeah but dark humor coupled with very normal reactions to ridiculous shit right with every single person in this story. First off, okay, so my big thesis on this film. Everybody in this movie, except for Marge, is an idiot. <laughs> yes. They are stupid. They make stupid decisions. They do things stupidly. And they die stupidly. Marge it's... is the only person in this film who knows <laughs> what the hell's going on and has any clue of how to get through it. it she is my favorite character arguably ever <laughs> dude margie's the best margie is one of the greatest characters ever created like i think i could watch her do anything for like a couple hours just the way that she like interrogates people with this like bemused perpetual smile yes i was just like it's like when, it's like when she's talking to the two truck stop prostitutes and she's like oh my god so, uh, yes. so what they what they look like she's like oh you know just a little funny looking like uh <laughs> Could you be more specific? No, just funny looking. <laughs> or, when she, or when she said you had sex with the little one? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, he wasn't circumcised. Oh, anything funny other than that? No. <laughs> okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. (laughs) Which leads to my favorite, my favorite, okay, so my favorite line reading in this actually does not, is involving Margie in that scene, but is not actually of a, a Marge line. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's when she's talking to the prostitutes and they're, and they're giving kind of their story. And uh, one of them is just like, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't go to college. I went to, I went to high school up at White Bear Lake. Go Bears. <laughs> go Bears. <laughs> she's just like, go Bears. <laughs> it's so, so sweet great. and cute. It's so cute. And it's not in the script, which is amazing. That That is a, on the day, like, go Bears. Uh-huh. <laughs> so where are you girls from? Chaska, Lesueur. But I went to high school in White Bear Lake. Go Bears. So cute. Uh, anyway, uh, so for folks that are unaware of what Fargo, the movie, Mom and Dad, <laughs> is about, it is about a, and like many Coen Brothers films, it is about a bunch of idiots trying to commit a crime and then everything going wrong. Which is there's, my favorite kind of crime. It's the best kind of crime. Like, there's here's the thing. There's two kinds of crime movies, okay? And there's two kinds of great crime movies. Because I've been watching a lot of Steven Soderbergh lately. There's either really smart people 
doing really smart crime really smartly, or there's really stupid crime <laughs> being done by stupid people stupidly. Uh, there is no favorite. middle ground. There is no middle ground. You either got Ocean's Eleven <laughs> or you've got Fargo. So this man named Jerry Lundegaard is tasking two delinquents played by Peter Stormare and the impeccable Steve Buscemi to kidnap his wife so he can get ransom money from his father-in-law and basically scam his way out of some debt that he is in currently. And that's the gist. That's where we begin. And the entire first act essentially is breaking down how everything goes wrong with this plan. Like, like you don't even get to like Marge is it Margie, the cop from Brainerd, which is where the massacre happens at this, that is caused by this kidnapping. Margie doesn't even show up until page 33. Crazy. She's not even in the movie. And then she's just like, Oh, thank you. I'm just going to take that movie from you. Okay. I'm just going to take that and just take that in my lap and, and, and just destroy this because the second oh, yeah. Frances McDormand is on screen, she is electric. She is the are definitely the best part of the movie, but I Hands can't down. picture anyone other than Steve Buscemi playing this. Apparently, it was written for him, which I can I can oh, believe. See, exactly. I can't picture anyone else playing it. So I really can't. They totally did just write it for him. Nobody else plays Chattermouth Scumbag <laughs> quite like mid '90s, specifically mid '90s Steve Buscemi. Between mm-hmm. this and Reservoir Dogs, he plays the best <laughs> scummy, chatty bad guy. His cheek made my stomach hurt <gasps> so bad. Oh, Mads, I was going to get to that. That's in my notes. <laughs> Sorry, go for it. I, I <laughs> not to take over who's more grossed out by this, but I I love a good gory kill. I love a good gore effect. I love a good blood spill in a movie. I'm not necessarily squeamish in that way. There is something about the way that Steve Buscemi's cheek is just split open. And just his jaw is just bleeding this this beautiful red blood. Honestly, I'm also have this thing recently where I'm judging blood in movies and what's great and what (laughs) sucks. This is great, great fake blood. This primo fake blood in this film. This is why I love you. (laughs) only you can have conversations about what makes great fake blood because i was watching the other day with a friend of mine we were watching john wick and john wick as much as i love it does not have good fake blood great movie (laughs) bad fake blood whereas batman v superman which is a shit movie has fantastic fake blood Mm -hmm. it's it, it their disparity is there it doesn't necessarily have to be great movie great fake blood fargo is the exception right but yeah, it, is, <laughs> it was vibrant. It is. It is bright. Beautiful. And look, Roger Deakins shot this movie. I know this is a screenwriting podcast, but Roger Deakins is Roger fucking Deakins. And he shot this movie. He shot the shit out of this movie. Uh, so that's unsurprising. It is a gorgeous looking movie. Oh, for sure. So let's begin at the beginning with. I, I don't know what your favorite part of this movie is, Madison. I'm very curious to find out what your favorite scene is. <laughs> but we have to, as per page break, to, as per page break tradition, we have to acknowledge the pre-film text drag that says the following. Mm-hmm. This is a true story. 
The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, their names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest have been told exactly as it occurred. The first thing you see in this movie is a lie. (laughs) Which is amazing. So amazing. In a world where true stories are things that do come like it's a thing that really happens like where it's like this is based off a true story audiences trust that but the good ones are like no we're just gonna lie to you (laughs) well that makes the premise so much more interesting i mean it it makes everything a little bit more uh arguably hyper realistic oh yeah it makes it, it, it it allows us to actually believe even more than we already do that everybody in this film is not only a real person but also making very human stupid mistakes Mm -hmm. because that's at the core of all this is every single person and we'll get into this more once i talk about like when we get into margie's kind of character arc and her journey but every single character in this film other than her is motivated by money and greed and pride And every one of them either dies or is arrested because of it. Mm -hmm. They're all brought down by their own selfish bullshit. There's something about operating under the premise of it being a true story and then having everything being like definitely completely fake. And also the way they combined how they say it's all true, but then all of the, especially the gory parts, it's just very almost like cartoonish you know like or oh yeah bigger than life like just very uh out there like the leg and the wood chipper or like oh, the beautiful. way they like put the bullet in the guy's head and then the, the blood just spurts out so it's like right yes it's all a true story but then like what you see on the screen just feels too much but that makes such a, a great feeling yeah, and it's also because the violence that occurs only happens in fits and bursts. It doesn't, it's not a, it's right. a, it's a gory in moments, but it's not a gory film. Right. There's just specific moments of intense, um, very specific blood and violence, which is kind of a very human thing. Uh, in a very on, true to form to reality thing when mm-hmm. it comes to how violence occurs. And honestly, that it's very messy. The fact that Steve Buscemi gets shot in the cheek in such an awkward way mm-hmm. that then it becomes a thing he has to deal with for the rest of the movie right. is brilliant because, like, who thinks of that? Like, he just got, he got grazed on the cheek in such a specific, it's like somebody took a razor and just skimmed it right down his jaw. It, like, who would make that up? Like, right. he's like, oh, well, I guess that would have to have happened. I guess that's how he got shot, because we would make that up. But, like, that coupled with the dark humor just makes those moments almost kind of funny. Oh, it's hilarious. So and it's like, yeah. it's such a, it, it's a great combination. It's those scenes of very intense gore coupled with scenes of the utmost banality. Oh, yes. Of just Margie and Norm being Margie and Norm. The Arby's scene had me, like, in my feels. Oh, it's so sweet. Like, Normia got Arby's on me. (laughs) (laughs) It's so sweet. 
uh, yeah, no, it, trust me. Early on in in me and my fiance Kristen's relationship, um, the uh, the whole uh, I love you, Norm. I love you, Margie. That whole thing. Uh, that that was a thing. That was an early on uh, staple of our relationship. Stop! I'm gonna throw up. That's so cute. <laughs> I love y'all. Oh, uh, love you too. Moving on <laughs> into beyond the first crawl, mm-hmm. as we do. So the interesting thing about the opening of the film, when in when coupled with the actual screenplay. The screenplay has several sequences that are cut from the film off the bat that are brilliant cuts because they're utterly irrelevant. Mm -hmm. There are two pages of Jerry Lundegaard as he's bringing this car to Fargo of him checking into a hotel, watching TV, and then eating dinner, and then meeting with... Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare and then being late for it, which I have to imagine is one of those things that occurs when you really think about like, how long does it take to drive from Minneapolis to Fargo? I'm sure it's a bit of a drive. So I'm pretty sure the presumption on the Coen brothers part is like, well, he'd have to stay the night. So let's just show him getting there and, and staying the night and getting a hotel and going to eat and doing this kind of weird single man in a weird small city thing. When in yeah. reality, the film needs to start. The, the film actually begins the moment he meets Buscemi and Stormare in the bar. I think, too, maybe part of their reasoning might have been not that I am the Coen brothers. <laughs> Wait, Madison. Wait, okay. But I've never seen you and the Coen brothers in the same (laughs) room at the same time. I mean, don't tell anyone. Damn it. (laughs) I think that part of what is so important about this story is how um, insignificant and not strong Jerry really is. You know, like, he's not our, like main protagonist who's got this like master plan he's just like a fumbling idiot so i think that that lead that lead up to the moment where he's asking them for this could have you know shown his like bleak life but once you cut it out i mean all of that comes through naturally anyway because what's incredible is in a movie about bumbling idiots having a plan that's honestly it's not the worst plan in the world. It could have worked several mm-hmm. times for everybody involved. But in the film, the very first thing that we see is part of the plan going wrong. <laughs> it's miscommunication. The first, so the first, the first bit of actual dialogue in the film is when Jerry walks up. Jerry, and also, okay, so also weird thing. The Coen brothers give two shits about screenplay etiquette. <laughs> they don't care. They will do things like in the on page two, introduce Jerry Lundergaard as Mr. Anderson. And then his title on his his character name is Anderson in dialogue until you get to page three when he introduces himself as Jerry Lundergaard. And then the next line is Lundergaard and he is Lundergaard for the rest of the film. 
Steve Buscemi is younger man until he actually says his name aloud and then he becomes Carl. You never see that. That's not a thing that that usually you do. You would never do that. You would just state the names in action description and then have them be introduced throughout the course of the sequence. Right. Gotta be honest, I'm not a huge fan of it, but you know. I'm not. Things. Yeah, I'm not necessarily either because like there, we'll get to it later, but there's a bit later on where I was reading the scene where you introduce Margie mm-hmm. and they never mention that she's pregnant. <laughs> it's never mentioned. You have to figure it out through context clues. It is never so said. Stupid. And she's got a and she's pregnant. It's just just there. But anyway, so, yeah, talking about the first thing messes up. The first bit of dialogue in the movie is uh, as Lundergaard approaches um, um, Carl and. Uh, the weird Swedish man that Peter Stormare plays. He says, uh, I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. Uh, Shep Proudfoot said, and then Steve Buscemi comes in and says, Shep said you'd be here at 7.30. What gives, man? Shep said 8.30. We've been sitting here for an hour. I've peed three times already. <laughs> the first thing that happens is a mix-up. The first thing that happens is Lundegaard screws it up. And that sets the tone for the entire rest of the film, where everything that can go wrong will because of either miscommunication or stupidity. I think that's way more effective as far as storytelling than building up a climax and then having everything go wrong. Because, I mean... Absolutely. It, it's way more interesting. Because well, no, you so, kind of expect yeah. things to fall apart if you're, you know, on pins and needles. It's a movie. The mo- right. Like, movies are not built to be everything goes right. And even movies that where everything does, quote unquote, go right, you have to have a lot of things go wrong before the actual thing goes right. Right. But for this movie, and what's amazing about this opening sequence and how incredibly well it's written is not only does it set up Jerry's predicament, Jerry's plan, that the fact that these two guys are kind of shady, but we're going with them anyway, and they probably know what they're doing. Jerry never spells out the full context of his plan to the point that the audience doesn't even know what his plan actually is. Right. He, what he's telling Carl is a lie. That's not, he's not actually trying to get $40,000 from his grant, from his father-in-law. He's trying to get a million dollars out of his (laughs) father-in-law, but he's not going to tell Carl that he's like, Oh, this is going to be a 40,000 here and 40,000 there. Like, no, but he's not telling them that. So he's thought this through. He's mm-hmm. but he but he's banking on the idea that his father-in-law is just going to trust him with a million dollars. And uh, that is a false assessment. Well, he's not the brightest, which we find out. Oh, God, he's not the brightest at all. Um, he's just all right, bad. So he's bad at he, talking. He's a bad at talking. He's a liar, which is why I love the scene where he's trying, he's selling the man the true coat. Yeah, that, that true coat, you know. And that man is just like, you're a liar, Mr. Lundergaard. Because, yeah, that's what Jerry <laughs> Lundergaard is. He is a liar. That is his he's main a- attribute. We sat right here in this room and went over this and over this. Yeah, but that true coat. I sat right here and said I didn't want any true coat. Yeah, but I'm saying that true coat. You don't get it. You get oxidation problems. It'll cost you a heck of a lot more than $500. You're sitting there. You're, you're talking in circles. You're talking like we didn't go over this already. Yeah, but this true coat... We had a deal here for nineteen five. You sat there and darned if you didn't tell me you'd get me this car, these options, without the ceiling for nineteen five. All right. I'm not saying I didn't. He's a bad liar. He's a horrible liar because what I love about the beginning is that, like, we set up this plan. We set up Jerry's problem. 
And then as on the day that shit's supposed to actually go down, the kidnapping's supposed to happen, he gets a call from his father-in-law. Oh, this deal might go through. Oh, you might get the money. Oh, okay. And he goes to Shep Proudfoot, who's his like in between, who's a, a mechanic at the at the um the 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 car lot that he works at. And he's like, mm-hmm. Oh, how do I uh, I gotta call this off here? And he's like, uh you can't I don't know where these guys you can't do that you can't pull the plug now like <laughs> just because things are going right and then everything goes to shit because even the plan goes to shit because again Jerry's stupid Jerry wanted his his father-in-law to give him three quarter of a million dollars so that Jerry could invest that in a parking lot claim <laughs> Like he's a bank <laughs> and the grandpa and the father was just like, why would I freaking do? I'm not a bank, dude. Why would I do that? Why would I give you a loan? You are stupid. And Jerry's just like, it's like, this is my deal here. This is I got to do this. And it's just like, no, you're a moron. Stop. Utter stupidity. The father reminds me of the father from Family Guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, he uh, really Fran- is. Francine's father, the, the millionaire. Yes. Oh, that is like, very they accurate. They look very similar too. They really do. <laughs> <laughs> that's all uh, I pictured the whole that's time. That's amazing. So, okay, another thing I love about um the way the Coens wrote this because the Coens, you can always tell. We talked about this before. You can always tell the difference between a screenplay that was written to be sold to a studio or to be made by a different director, or a screenplay that was written for those same people to direct it. Because if you were writing this movie for to, to sell it to someone, you would never do the name switching midway right. through scenes. You would make it abundantly clear that Margie was pregnant. And I don't think you would do this either, even though I find it adorable and it's perfect. You wouldn't phonetically say certain words very right. specifically to how these yes. Minnesotans would say it. Like, uh, even words that, frankly, they say normally, like the word groceries. Mm-hmm. In the script, they spell groceries G-R-O-W-S-E-R-I-E-S. Why? Yeah. I don't know why. Because they don't say groceries weird that I remember, but I that's what they just, do. They're so caught up in their own creative endeavor that I think to them it makes sense as far as like, let me paint a picture for you. Which, oh, I love it. Yeah. Uh I have mixed feelings about <laughs> because I find some things like that very pretentious, but like also it's, it's true. A fantastic movie. So it's fair. I mean, the Coen brothers, Coen brothers are going to Coen brothers and <laughs> they, the Coen brothers are like on the verge. They're not pretentious filmmakers at all, but if they, they like could have gone that way. Right. You know what I mean, like the fact that they, they're able to, move forward from those decisions and pull it off makes it not annoying exactly you know like if they had done you know something that was different or not as good it would be a lot more irritating absolutely so moving further along to the street let's get to margie i know we spend a lot of time talking about her but let's just get let's just get to margie so margie and norm are my favorite part of this film And what I find so interesting, and I only realized this upon watching the film, not even in the script is this really in here. The script is actually very different from this. Because 
Margie's story has always kind of been as the incredibly efficient, incredibly well-to-do cop who is smarter than all these other idiots and tracks this all down by sheer will of just being awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, hell, the, the there's that great bit where she's in the car with her deputy and he's like, oh, yeah, the uh, in the book for the trooper who got shot, he's uh, he wrote down DLR. So I got I got them all looking across the state for a DLR license plate. And she's like, not 100 percent behind your police work there. And he's like, oh, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I think DLR means dealer plates. He's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I swear to God, that man got hired <laughs> exclusively because he can say, yeah, like really good. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but the amazing thing about Margie's story is that I would contend in the film, it is the story of a woman who knows that she's smarter than everybody else and wonders whether or not this life is fulfilling for her. Now, let me explain this theory. Okay. Every scene that she is in with Norm is incredibly sweet and is incredibly kind. And he's a very good husband. But their life is very mundane. They go to bed and watch and watch bug documentaries. He paints birds for stamps. There's that scene where they go. There's that scene that is different. There's a scene that is different between script and movie where in the movie she goes to a old person's buffet with Norm and they just kind of sit there just scooping down food because she's pregnant. She's got to eat a lot. And it's just it's not even a sad scene where they're just like a bunch with a bunch of old folks. It's just kind of a like this is uh, this is life there scene. But in the in the script, Margie's there by herself. Norm went off on his own to go ice fishing. So but in this one, it's very clear that Norm is there. Norm is specifically a good husband. There's another sub thing in this where Margie has a friend named Mike. Oh, I forget his last name. It's Yamagita, something like that, who calls her out of the blue from high school. Who's like, oh, I was like, look, I saw Margie on. I saw you on the tube. And I just, wow, look at you. Look at you. I'm in Minneapolis. You, so we should say hi. And when she finds out that there's a lead in Minneapolis, seems to have a good reason to go there. And in the course of this thing, we'll meet up with this man. Now, this man is no kind of a romantic thing for her, but there's something that Francis McDormand does physically yes. that is not written in. I th- do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. You think so? Well, she, wa- she walks into the restaurant. She's dressed up for the first time in the film that we mm-hmm. ever see her not in a police uniform. And she sees him sitting at a booth facing away from her. And she lightly fixes her hair. Mm-hmm. in a very how do I look oh, okay type of thing that's not written in that whole scene is written actually very differently from a staging standpoint and from a blocking standpoint in the script but that is a very specific yeah. choice I think too that that choice um highlights the fact that this is something outside of her world. So yes. whether it is something she's always thought about or, you know, and then implications aside, that one little moment just shows that this is different. You know, it's not, yes. it's not the office. It's not, 
it's not norm it's not you know it's not arby's <laughs> she's 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 not a wife or a future mother or a chief of police she's right. just a woman in the mm-hmm. world unconstrained by her circumstances and I don't yeah I really don't think there's any like oh I'm going to cheat on Norm with this guy but right that is a that moment is a key insight into Marge's journey and true narrative arc that leads her from being in bed with Norm when the story begins to being in bed with Norm when the story ends and being like we got a good life here you know and that it's was just so it, sweet it's so sweet Heck, Normina, we're doing pretty good. I love you, Margie. I love you, Norm. It's so good. And that realization of, you know what? I like my life. I'm happy. I'm content. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I don't need, I've seen the world, the ugliness of the world of people being violent over a little bit of money that that monologue she has toward peter stormare in the police car at the very end where she's just like yeah killed all those people and for what a little bit of money so that was mrs lundegaard on the floor in there and i guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper Three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? I just love the like gender subversion going on because Dude, right? Like you go through this whole movie and you watch her take down all these guys and like she's going through this like triple homicide. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie she's telling Norm how proud she is of his Right stamps and like it's just this moment of like you did good honey but she means it and it's so sweet but like it's so refreshing to see like some kind of like twist on like uh i don't know not just gender norms but like Uh life life you know mundane life well and it's really cool because like and this is also not written in but this is a directorial choice of how we're introduced to marge is the shot starts on one of Norm's paintings and you pan across the bedroom and then you see Marge lying in bed. You don't see Norm yet. Then the phone rings. Norm like sits up, like scrubbing his eyes. She answers the phone, starts talking about the, the hit and run that happened that she has to go take a look at the murders on the, on the, uh, on the highway. And you don't know she's pregnant until she sits up out of bed. Like there's a brilliant, just like, it's not scripted, but there's a brilliant, just like, Oh, you're and you're pregnant. Oh, 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 God. And nobody makes a thing about it. She's just a badass police chief who can immediately eyeball footprints, understand how this crime scene was created all by herself. That's and my it's not scene, even a thing. The, the scene where, where she's breaking down the crime scene. Mm-hmm. It's real good, right? That's my favorite one. Like, I have it pulled up. Please. And- 
<laughs> this this might be a good time for for Madison's favorite scene. It is of the film. It's Let's the perfect time. Do it. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna start at the beginning of the scene, but yeah, it's Mar- a long scene. <laughs> Marge is studying the ground. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. From his footprints, he looks like a big fella. Marge suddenly doubles over, putting her head between her knees near the snow. Lou, you see something down there, Chief? Marge, uh, I just, I think I'm gonna barf. (laughs) Lou, jeez. You okay, Margie? Marge, I'm fine. It's just a little morning sickness. Just morning sickness. She gets up, sweeping snow from her knees. Well, that passed. (laughs) And Lou says, yeah? Marge, yeah. Now I'm hungry again. (laughs) I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I tell you what, from his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. Oh my god. I love Marge so much. <laughs> it's just the level of just like matter of factness to it all. Just like, oh, oh yeah. now I'm hungry again. Yeah. Well, that passed. That <laughs> <Yeah>, passed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start saying that now. Well, Ooh, that passed. Oh, that, well, that passed. <laughs> <laughs> so great. What's so smart about this, the, the, the adaptation from script to movie is there are several scenes that are cut that are wise cuts because they frankly hold no real narrative benefit. Right. Or there's actually an actual narrative detriment. Like there's the scene of like Norm leaving to go ice fishing. That's not in the movie. He's still there the whole time. Uh, Margie going to the Minneapolis police department is not in the movie. She talks to the chief over there, but she never actually goes there. Um, there's one one of those changes I think is actually very interesting and very important to Marge's story and the and how her growth throughout the story is after she has her dinner with um you're such a super lady uh Mike uh with his crying weeping sad sack my wife died so now I'm very lonely <laughs> situation which, right. which, okay, just spoiler alert. That's not my favorite scene in the movie, but there, but I haven't watched, I haven't watched Fargo in a while. That scene, I think about at least once a week because it makes me so uncomfortable. The level of cringe that exists in that scene, especially when like he sits across, he wants to be like, well, how about I sit over here? And he goes, sits on her side of the booth and she's like, uh, I don't want you to do that. It's just. <laughs> <sighs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But so after that, there's a phone conversation that Margie has with a friend of hers where the friend says, Oh yeah, he uh he didn't have a wife. He uh he stalked a girl for a while. He lives with his parents, you know. <laughs> and Margie's like, Oh, that's uh that's shocking. Like he just straight up lied to her. And Margie's just like, Oh wow, he just straight up lied to me, didn't he? And in the script that moment kind of blows pie because she goes and visits the Minneapolis police department. And then they give her information saying that 
Shep Proudfoot got busted for assault. And we think that there may be some connection here more specifically. The Minneapolis police kind of put this in on her attention that she may need to go talk to Jerry Lundergaard again. But the movie doesn't do that. The movie instead cuts from her on the phone be like, that's uh, that's surprising to her driving by herself, deep in thought, cut to a real quick bit of her pulling through an Arby or Hardee's to get food at a drive-thru, which she's yes. just, just that beautiful, just like, hello? <laughs> I love that. That was beautiful. I love every word she says in this film. I know. Cutting back to the same, cutting to her just eating, to the same driving shot again, and then letting her go to Jerry Lundergaard's office. And the implication of those scenes are she realized she may have been lied to by someone else. That is literally her putting pieces together in her head of, huh, wait a minute. I don't need to trust this Lundergaard guy because that sounded really fishy. And then she goes, so which gives a lot of meaning to that weird scene with Mike Yamagita. Like it gives her the actual story agency and choice to figure things out on her own in a way that never would have occurred in any other way. Beautiful. It's so well done. And I just think that's, that's one of those choices that I don't know if they found that in editing. I don't know what they did, but it's a very distinct, clear choice narratively to give her that narrative responsibility. Right. And it fits it fits in so well with the rest of the story, too, as far as the way they tell the story. It really does. She does not need some Minneapolis cops to tell her what is going on. Mm-hmm. She is damn well smart enough to figure it out for herself. Definitely. I would trust her with my life. I Margie like is I want her to be my police. I would vote for Margie <laughs> for any public office. Oh, for sure. Uh, oh, without question. hundred percent. Norm can be her running mate. I I want Norm. No, you know what? That's a lie. I want Norm to be the first husband of whatever office she is. I want I want Norm to just be right there, just standing all proud of his wife as she's just kicking ass. By the way, did you know that 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 Joel Cohen is married to Frances (laughs) McDormand? Only because I saw your tweet right before we recorded. Dude, it recorded. blew my mind. I was looking up IMDb trivia. I was just like, oh, what's, let's, let's figure this out before the episode. And I was like, wait a diddly damn second there. I can't believe I this? didn't know that. Dude, I don't know. I can't believe I didn't know that. I'm like, I can't kidding believe you didn't me. know that either. I had no clue. I had no clue whatsoever. But yeah, they've been married since like 1985. It's ridiculous. Dang. There's some plausibility that I didn't know, but the fact that you didn't know is shocking. Mads. It's a character flaw, and um, <laughs> I'm very disappointed in myself. But we've, we've all got him. You know, just you just gotta keep on uh, keeping on. <laughs> but it is very weird with this movie, where and we're jumping all over the place. But the Coens do not write traditionally throughout this at all. They do not write in the traditional. What you see in the scene in the movie is basically the, the 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 way it's written in the script. Like there's a sequence where 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 Steve Buscemi's character is at a nightclub with a prostitute and the scene just starts with them just chatting. There's no context given. There's no scene descriptors. There's some of it comes later in the script, but like most times in traditional screenplays 
in traditional screenplays, you will front end as much of that stuff as humanly possible. You will set things. You will set up where you are. You'll set up what you're doing. You'll set up who the players are in the scene unless somebody's supposed to come in later. And then once you're done with that, dialogue will start. It's just kind of how most folks write things. The Coens are just kind of breezing through all this without really any regard with anybody other than them understanding exactly what's happening at any given time, which makes a lot of sense considering they're the only, they're both tag team creating this thing together and they're the only ones who need to understand it. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It wor- and it works really well. It really does. It's consistent. Like that's the thing we always talk about rules of screenwriting and whether yeah. they should be followed through or not. Rules are made to be broken only by people who understand them intimately. The Coens are the freaking Cohen brothers. If anybody can break screenplay format, it's those guys. They get, they've got a lifetime certificate of being able to do whatever the hell they want because of the damn Cohen brothers. Also, they are consistent with it. They are consistent. That's the thing. They break their rules, but they set their own rules. It's like you, right. it's like they create a, like a, like a legend, like a, like on a map of being like, this is how many miles this is, or this is blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. They're like, this is the new rules of this screenplay that we're following. And you can get on it because we're going to be consistent about it. So you're not confused on page 76 right. about something that changed from page three. Mm-hmm. Um, other little kind of formatting things I really like. There's a scene late in the movie where uh, Steve Buscemi has the million dollars and he realizes that he has a million dollars and he's trying to figure out how he's going to get away with stealing it all. So he decides to bury it in the snow out in bumfuck uh, North Dakota where nobody else can find it. So what he decides to do is he's going to go out to this barbed wire fence, bury it in the snow, leave this like red pitchfork looking thing there and like and go off so he can come back and pick up the money later. But this is really I love this little piece of writing where they in here it says um, exterior of the car. It is pulled over to the side of an unraveled road. First off, oh, it's untraveled, untraveled, untraveled road. I also like unraveled road, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> the car door opens and Carl emerges with the briefcase. He slogs through the snow, down a gully, and up the embankment to a barbed wire fence. He kneels at one of the fence posts and frantically digs into the snow with his bare hands, throws in the briefcase, and covers it back up. He stands up, trying to beat the circulation back into his red, frozen hands, and looks to the right. A regular line of identical fence posts stretches away against unblemished white. He looks to the left. A regular line of identical fence posts stretches away against unblemished white. <laughs> he looks at the fence post in front of him. Hmm. I love the fact that they just literally like copy paste. Yeah, the exact same thing is both ways because that's the shot. And it's just it's just gorgeous. You could just said, see the same thing going the other way. No, no, no. Cohen's are going to actually be symmetrical with that shit. And it's going to be delightful. Well, that's also the humor that plays out on the screen. Yes, absolutely. Because it's literally the exact same just so no it, man's land that you see going like, on, stretching on forever. Like it gives you that chuckle in the script that they knew they wanted in the movie. So like yes. there there it goes again with like the director being the writer. All right, let's chat about the stupidity of Steve Buscemi's character in this film. Oh yeah. It's let's great. just open up this conversation because we're at that point in the film. So Steve Buscemi has just come into a million dollars that he didn't expect to get. He hides it, takes 80000 out, which is the 
previously agreed upon amount that he and his cohort were supposed to get. Takes it back to the cabin. In the cabin, Mrs. Lundegaard, who was kidnapped, is now dead. Off camera, just shot in the face by, by Peter Stormare, which is really messed up. She is the only person in this movie, who, not the only person, but one of the only people who dies in this movie for no reason. Like, she didn't deserve that. She didn't do anything. She was, she was just an old, she was just like, oh, I think so. She is, she honestly wins the most Fargoist Fargo-y voice award. Even more than Fred's McDormand. In the few scenes where Jean has lines, she's like, oh, oh, I don't think so. Like, oh, she yeah. is, she, she kills it. Fargo award goes to her. <laughs> but C. Buscemi comes in, he's like, all right, man, yeah, we got the money. I got shot, but it's whatever. Here's the money for your end. Here's the money for my end. We're square. I'm going to go. Actually, you know, you take my truck. I'm going to keep that brand new car that we were given because I got shot. And he starts walking away. Peter Stormare's like, no, we split. We split the car. It is for both of us. And Steve Buscemi, who, may I repeat, has a million dollars buried in the snow and could buy 50 shitty cutlasses <laughs> get snippy and starts arguing with this cold-blooded murderer sitting in front of him and says no i'm not giving you the car you can just go to hell and it storms out of the cabin only to be met with an axe to the face like an idiot mm. morons that's every, every there's no, I, I know like I'm beating a dead horse here and I'm just beating a drum over and over again. But for the love of God, everybody in this film is so stupid. Also, the part, the, the moment where he argues about the four dollars. <laughs> right, right. He argues like, with the- <laughs> like, don't you want to get the hell out of here? <laughs> No, well, he, well, at least he learns later on. Later on, he just shoots the parking lot attendant because who needs that <laughs> aggravation? Right. Oh God, just just the, the way he pulls the the napkin off his chin Oof. where there's blood, just just, just so yes. so gross, so gross. So also talking of stupidity, this is honestly my favorite analogy for the level of criminal we're dealing with this in this film. Peter Stormare at the end has the body of 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 Steve Buscemi's character that he has to get rid of now because he just axed it in the face. So how does he decide that he's going to get rid of this body? Hmm. He puts it in a wood chipper. Because that get, makes sense. Because you know the best way to get rid of evidence? By creating more evidence. You moron. God, there's, okay, there's a Peter Stormare scene that's in the script that gets cut out of the movie where because Steve Buscemi keeps bitching about the television in their cabin messing up. Peter Stormare goes to his ex-wife's home and steals their television to bring back to put into his kidnap cabin, <laughs> which I'm just like, why? Like, I, I don't know why that scene's in the script in the first place, but like just I, it, so there's so many scenes like that of just kind of moments that are weird connective tissue that a lot of them are quite delightful and fun, but have no real narrative plus because this film is, this is a hundred and how many page? This is a hundred and 
four-page screenplay, it is about a 95-minute movie. This movie gets on rails and doesn't stop moving. It is so tight. I've watched it like six times because of that, too. Dude, I have, too. I turned it on, like, because Kristen was out last night when I was watching it. When she got home, we just started talking about it for, like, two hours. And I'm like, (laughs) you want to watch it again? So we turned it back on, and it was just Mm -hmm. delightful. It was so much fun. It's surprisingly a movie that you can just, like, throw on. Right, because it's like, uh, just the language is so much fun to -hmm. listen to. It's like a warm hug of a movie, because everybody's (laughs) just so delightful even jerry lundergaard i love listening to him bumble his ass through this film mm-hmm. it's real fun um all right so let me see all right i'm gonna do jeremy's lot jeremy's favorite scene of the movie which is also jeremy's Ooh. most uncomfortable scene of the movie just because i gotta it's so uncomfortable i gotta just get through this um it's a long ass scene too. Like this scene where she's sitting there talking to it's Glenn in the script, but it's Mike in the movie. This scene where she's just sitting there talking to him, it just takes so long. So she's sitting there talking with Glenn and she tries to sit like right next to him, put his arm around her. And she's like, uh, uh, no, I, I don't, I don't want that. And he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. And then they keep talking where it's like, it, uh, it sounds like you're doing really super. And then Glenn says, yeah, well, I, uh, it's not that it didn't work out, uh, with my marriage. Janet, she, uh, she passed away. She, uh, Marge, I'm sorry. Glenn's composure is slipping. Glenn, yeah, I, uh, it was a long, uh, it was a tough, uh, it was leukemia. She thought it was, uh, Marge. Oh, I'm sorry, Glenn. Let me remind you, we don't learn this till a few scenes later. This is all bullshit. He's lying out of his ass. He's just trying to get sympathy <laughs> points. Glenn, oh, you know, that's, uh, that's, what can you say? First off, all you know is also one of my favorite, my favorite Fargoisms. He holds up his drink. Better times, huh? Marge clinks it. Better times. Also for the fact, I hate to keep breaking this up, but the Coens probably saved themselves like six pages of actual script length because when they have a scene where a character has a line, there's an action descriptor, then he has another line, they don't re-put the character name on like slugged down they just keep writing dialogue which again is not how you normally do it i've never seen something do it this way normally if you're doing that you put them in parentheticals and then you have the dialogue go further down but these guys don't care all right moving on uh margie clinks it marge better times glenn it was so uh i've been so and then i saw you on tv and i remembered you know i I always liked you marge well i always liked you glenn glenn I always liked you so much. Marge, it's okay, Glenn. Should we uh, get together another time, you think? Glenn, no, I'm sorry. It's just I, I've been so lonely. Then I saw you and he's weeping. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I thought I'd have a really terrific time and now I've... Marge, it's okay. Glenn, you're such a super lady. And then <laughs> I've been so lonely. Marge, it's okay, Glenn. <laughs> And that's the scene. Oh my God. <laughs> that's it. It's beautiful. I love it. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No, I... I... 
I'm sorry. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. I, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then, I've been so lonely. It's okay, Mike. I have seen movies that are actually of horrific events that really did happen that have made me cringe less <laughs> than that sequence and how uncomfortable it is because of Margie's general politeness and this guy's creepiness. <laughs> it's not great. Also, you crushed the reenactment. Yes! Nailed it! Nailed oh, yeah? It. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. Look, this is what Chris and us deal with on a day-to-day basis of, <laughs> of all this. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Get darn tootin'. Which is my favorite phrase. That's just my favorite line of any movie ever. Get darn tootin'. I think she can hang. She's honestly got a much better... <laughs> she's better at it than I am. I just say it more. It was really bad when we had a friend come down from Mardi Gras who is from <laughs> Wisconsin. And we... Bad. And he has this accent. And we just started talking like that unconsciously. And then we had to catch ourselves like, oh, no, we're being very offensive to you. He's like, oh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's OK. We get it all that time. Actually, I brought you a gift. Here's some cheese. He brought us cheese from Wisconsin. They're so I nice. Believe, I can't believe people just walk around sounding like that. Right. It sounds like you like living in the North Pole, a ma- land of magical words and phrases, just like, <laughs> oh, how you doing? Oh, you know, oh, I just can't complain. Just just all of it. Every single time. That's why I love that some scenes go on. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. OK. Another scene that's amazing is the one scene in the movie that actually doesn't feature any of our main characters, which is crucial to the plot. And also it contends that all the men in this movie are stupid. Stupid. Um, where is there? I'm gonna find it real quick. Um, it's the scene where the Brainerd cop, which, by the way, even though there's only one scene in this movie that actually takes place in Fargo, the rest of it takes place in Minneapolis or Brainerd. And according to the Coens, the reason they named it Fargo is because Brainerd is a shitty name for a movie. Can't say I disagree. But all right, so this is a scene where one of the Brainerd cops is going to follow up on a complaint slash lead that he heard from one of the members of the town <laughs> so this is just it's just a man that's it and, and this is a chris this incredible bit of of, of action description where it's, where it's these two men talking on this man's front stoop and he says the two men both in snorkel hooded parkas talk in the driveway without shaking hands and without standing particularly close to one another. They stand stiffly with their arms down at their sides and vaporized breath steaming out from their hoods. Each has an awkward leaning away posture, head drawn slightly back and chin tucked in to keep the face from protruding into the cold. And this is the man's description. He says, So I'm tending bar there at Uckland in Sweden's last Tuesday night. And this little guy drinking, and he says, So where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there by the lake. And I says, What kind of action? And he says, A woman action. What do I look like? And I say, well, uh, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, I'm going crazy out there by the lake. And I says, well, this ain't that kind of place, Gary. Uh-huh, man. So he says, so I get it. So I think I'm going to kind of j- think I'm some kind of jerk for asking. Only he doesn't use the word jerk, Gary. I understand. Again, 
fanatics says understand <laughs> understand not understand man and then he calls me a jerk and says the last guy who thought he was a jerk is dead now so i don't say nothing and he says what do you think about that i say well that don't sound like too good a deal for him then gary you got that right man he says yeah that guy's dead and uh, i don't mean of old age and then he says geez i'm going crazy out there by the lake gary white bear lake go bears man what that was that was an ad lib um that shouldn't say go bears uh <laughs> <laughs> Man, well, Eklund is swelled in Zach. That's closer to Boost Lake. So I, I made that assumption, Gary. Oh, sure. Uh, man, so, you know, he's drinking, so I don't think a whole deal of it. But uh, Mrs. Mora heard about the homicides out here, and uh, she thought I should call it in. So I called it in. End of story. <laughs> so I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedland's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says, last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah, he says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedlin, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it, but then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. <laughs> Great. It's beautiful. And then this cop's just like, oh, that shit. No, no, no. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I forgot. So then the next slide, the Gary said, Gary, the cop says, what this guy look like anyways? The man. Oh, he was a, a little guy. Kind of funny looking. <laughs> <laughs> Gary. Uh-huh. In what way? Man, just in a general way. <laughs> so, so Jeremy's favorite scene is the whole movie. <laughs> Mads, if I could just do a live reading of this entire <laughs> film in the same voice, I would do it because it's delightful. Okay, next time I see you, we're getting drunk and reenacting this movie. Yes! Yes! <laughs> oh my god, yes! Let's oh, do it. Let's do it. I'm so excited. Okay, um, so anyway, enough of my prattling on. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, if you haven't seen Fargo out there, please go check it out. It's incredible. It's The, the show is also fantastic, for the record. The show yeah. is incredibly well-written. I want to know more about the show. The show? Okay, so have you? do you know anything about the show, Mads, at all? I know that... Well, Martin, what's his face is in it? I like him. He is. He's amazing. So the, the first, it's an anthology. So every season kind of follows a different group of people. Uh, but the first season is very interesting because there, there, nothing ties in to the plot of the movie except for the suitcase of money. Mm. That we find out got found by somebody. But you don't find that out until very late in the season. Like there's no connection to the events of Fargo the movie until huh. that point. That's the only connective point. But it's all new characters. That's the same accents, you know. And Martin Freeman does an incredible... Freeman, that's what it is. Martin Freeman does an incredible uh, William H. Macy, Macy style uh, accent. It is. It's beautiful. Um, Definitely but every watch it now. Also, oh, also, um, Ewan McGregor 
also does a fantastic. Ewan McGregor does a great one. Uh, the 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 main actress in season one does great. Patrick Wilson does a great one. Every like um oh um. Ewan Chris, McGregor. Kristen Stewart does a great one. Uh, Ewan McGregor is my man, and Kristen Stewart is my woman. Then then you gotta hop on. No, not Kristen Stewart. No, God, no. Who's who played Mary <laughs> Jane in the original Spider Man? Oh, uh, uh, that was. Oh God, who is that? The original Spider Man. Yeah, the original, the original Mary Jane. No, you're asking the wrong person. Come on, Matt. Let's get it together. Um, she was in Vampire uh, Interview with the Vampire. She was in Melancholia. Um, I gotta figure this out now. To the Google machine, Kirsten Dunst. That's who I was oh. thinking of. Okay, yeah, I did know that. She, I love she's her. She's in it. She's delightful. Everybody in that show is so good, and every season is very different. Um. I, I highly recommend watching them. They're super fun. But if you haven't seen the movie, watch the movie because the movie is the best version of them all. And it, it you, just, you can't beat Frances McDormand and her uh, and her not. and her just manic, amazing energy throughout that entire film. She carries that film. It's so good. And also see Buscemi. I'll see everybody. There's not a bad performance in this movie. There's not a bad line reading in this movie there's not a bad beat or moment everything about it is pure in like the best possible way i think my favorite thing about uh marge's character is her coat when she's pregnant oh right it's like she's walking around in like a like an actual comforter i know i know she just waddles kind of along just doing her thing just like it's great oh well, that passed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mads, let's wrap this sucker up. Um, first, and also for the record, everybody, if you want to read scripts like this or any other, they're not like paying us for this, but Script Slug. ScriptSlug.com is the best place to get scripts. That's where we get a lot of our scripts from that we follow. It's a great teaching tool, and it's super fun just to scroll through and find different scripts. Um, it's the best way to learn how to write a movie if you don't know how to write a movie is, well, A, you could write a movie, but B, <laughs> read a lot of screenplays because they're just a lot of fun and they're the basis for the show. And if there weren't databases of screenplays online, we wouldn't have a show. It's like a book, but not. It's like a book, but like not in the same format and <laughs> longer go, or shorter, depending just go on. Just do it. Just go do it. Okay, now. So, uh... For, uh, this, uh, it was a 10-4 over there. And uh, <laughs> for uh, Page Break this week, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Madison. And uh, uh, Break there. <laughs>